Hey y'all, welcome to the first episode of the On Iowa podcast. I'm your new host, Leah Van, and I'm really excited to start talking about Iowa football. Now, as y'all know, this is a really boring time in football world. We did learn that Iowa will host its NFL Pro Day on March 22nd, but the NFL draft, as y'all know, is not until April. So, with nothing really currently going on, I thought I would go back in time and explore some of Iowa football's athletics history. Now, the first three episodes are going to be about Iowa's black history, specifically in athletics. And I thought that would be a good topic since we are closing out Black History Month, which is the month of February. The first episode, I'm really just going to dig in to the pioneering black athletes at Iowa. There were three football players. The next episode, I'm actually going to speak with the first black woman athlete at Iowa because we cannot neglect women's athletics. And then we're going to move forward on the third episode, talking about continuing the conversation on race and how we can use this history to really push the needle forward. So this first episode, I talked with Neil Rosendahl, who is an Iowa athletics historian. I will let him give you his full background But Neil Rosendahl has heavily documented the history of black athletes at Iowa. So today, we will be talking about the three pioneering black athletes at Iowa, Frank Kenny Holbrook, Archie Alexander, and Duke Slater. Now, before I start the interview with Neil, here's some background on the athletes we are going to talk about. I am purposely leaving out the most interesting details so Neil can expand on all of them and talk about the mark that they really left on Iowa football history. Now, Frank Kenny Holbrook was the first ever black collegiate athlete at Iowa. He played football and ran track for the Hawkeyes in 1895 to 1896. Archie Alexander was the second black athlete at Iowa from 1909 to 1911. And he was the first black man to graduate with an engineering degree from the University of Iowa. Duke Slater, who a lot of y'all might be familiar with, he's been heavily written about, he was the third black football player at Iowa from 1918 to 1921. He was the first and only black man elected to the inaugural class of the College Football Hall of Fame and later became the first black lineman in the NFL in 1922. Now, I hope y'all enjoy my talk with Neil. I think he's a super interesting guy and... I learned a lot from him, so let's get started. Neil, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Yeah, for sure. So you, can you tell me in your own words, like what your position is and what what you currently do as far as like your expertise in this? Of black history? Sure. Um, well, I, I grew up in Iowa. Um, I've always been an Iowa fan uh, since I was young. Uh, I uh, attended the University of Iowa and graduated from there in, in 2002. And I've always loved the, uh, the history of the Hawkeyes and the history of uh, Hawkeye athletics. Um, and uh, it was about uh, 10 years ago now that I uh, published Uh, My first book on Hawkeye Athletics, I I co-authored a book uh, in 2010, and uh, since then I've I've written three books on Hawkeye Athletics, 
Um, I have a fourth that's uh, due out this year. Um, and uh, uh, my, my last book uh, that came out uh, actually uh, uh, several years back was a biography on uh, Duke Slater, who uh, is one of the great uh, athletes in, in Hawkeye history and, and really one of those stories that a lot of people uh, don't know. And uh, uh, along with publishing that book, I, I sort of started a campaign to, uh, to get him greater recognition and uh, including uh, to try to get him into the uh, uh, get him inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Uh, and get him more recognition at the University of Iowa. And I'm happy to say that uh, uh, he, he has been elected to the Professional Football Hall of Fame in the class of, of 2020. And also uh, uh, the University of Iowa has done some, some marvelous things to, uh, to recognize Duke Slater as well, and including uh, a relief uh, that they put on the, on the north side of the end zone uh, uh, at Kinnick Stadium um, uh, uh, last year. So uh, uh, it's been exciting and it's been fun. And, and I'm, I'm I'm just really thrilled to be able to, uh, to help tell some of these great stories. So you mentioned that you started a campaign to get Duke Slater into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, but he also was, correct me if I'm wrong, the first black athlete to be admitted into the College Football Hall of Fame. So maybe can you expand and tell people who are listening to this podcast, who was Duke Slater and what is his position in football history? Yeah, Duke Slater was was just such an amazing pioneer. He was uh, an incredible, obviously, when, when you talk about the football aspect of it, he was an unbelievable football player. Uh, you mentioned it, that he was uh, the first uh, black athlete inducted into the uh, College Football Hall of Fame. When the College Football Hall of Fame opened in 1951, he was the only African-American in that inaugural class. Uh, so, you know, when he played at the University of Iowa, uh, from 1918 to 1921. Uh, he was a two-time All-American, a three-time uh, All-Big Ten selection. He, uh, as a senior in 1921, he played a key role in what I think, uh, uh, what is widely considered one of the greatest, and I think, uh, in my opinion, maybe the greatest uh, team in Hawkeye football history. Uh, the 1921 Hawkeyes uh, uh, went undefeated, were the outright champions of the Big Ten, uh, won a, uh, an incredible non-conference game over uh, Newt Rockney and Notre Dame, and, uh, and you know, have a legitimate claim as the best team in the nation that year, as the mythical national champions. So this was an incredible team, and uh, Duke Slater was really the first uh, black football player to play a prominent role in, uh, on a team that was, uh, had a legitimate claim to be national champions. So his stature as a football player was incredible. And then, of course, he went on to play 10 years in the National Football League uh, with considerable acclaim. And, of course, that was the basis of trying to get him elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame as well. So he, was, he had an amazing athletic career. And then what I love about the Duke Slater story is he wasn't obviously just an athlete. He used football uh, to go on to do greater things in life. He used it as a, as a springboard for his post-athletic career. Uh, he earned a law degree from the University of Iowa in 1928 which is an incredible achievement. Um, and then went on to become an attorney on the South side of Chicago. Uh, and then eventually was elected as a judge on the South side of Chicago. He was just the second uh, black judge in uh, Chicago history in the history of the city of Chicago. Um, so he was really able to use those uh, uh, gifts in football uh, to do amazing things beyond football. And, and, and yet, unfortunately, yeah, he, he passed away in 1966. Uh, he had no children. His wife uh, preceded him in death by a, a few years, and he was kind of forgotten. And I, when I was writing the book on, on Duke Slater, I read a, an article where uh, 
um, one uh, news reporter interviewed uh, a dozen or so students coming out of Slater Hall and asking them who Duke Slater was. And none of them had any idea. They'd never heard of him. And they were living in the building at the time named after him. And yet when, when even told the name Duke Slater, they didn't put two and two together. The Slater was the guy that Slater Hall was named for. And so that sort of uh, 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 kind of uh, being overlooked uh, was one of the things that I, that I really wanted to remedy with the book uh, when I wrote it. And um, uh, again, I think it's, it's been really positive over the past decade or so that more and more people are, are, are stumbling onto the story because it really is an incredible story. And the last thing I'll say about Duke Slater is that, uh, you know, he had such an impact on the University of Iowa that he was really, in, in my mind, the start of so many great athletes. It's uh, so many great black athletes. It was almost like a flood of black athletes then came to the University of Iowa after Slater played there because he was so well known that people wanted to go uh, play at the University of Iowa because they knew if it was a school that gave Duke Slater a chance, uh, it would give other athletes a chance as well. And so a number of other prominent uh, black athletes sort of followed uh, in Duke's wake as well. So he really, uh, in addition to all the things that he did, uh, he really helped change the face of, of, of Hawkeye athletics forever because this great tradition that, that the University of Iowa has of providing opportunities for, for black athletes in, in, in some of these early days uh, really kind of started with him and the amazing athlete and, and man that he was. So he's an incredible story. And I'm, I'm, I've just been so happy to, uh, to have a role in helping to tell the story. And I, I'm curious as to how do you start a campaign to get somebody in, into the Pro Football Hall of Fame? Like, how did that come to fruition? Well, it's, it's time consuming. It's, and it's difficult because the first thing that you do is you study the Pro Football Hall of Fame and you understand that uh, the, the election process and the way that it works is there are really only, I think, 48 uh, sports writers who vote uh, to decide uh, who makes it into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in any given year. And then when you looked at Duke Slater's case specifically, um, after a player has been uh, retired or out of the league, beyond a certain point, his only way of being elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame is through the seniors committee. And the seniors committee is a subcommittee of those 48 guys, which consists of only nine, nine historians and sports writers uh, who, who really sort of decide uh, who makes it in, in the Pro Football Hall of Fame from the seniors committee. So, you know, you have to try to approach those nine people. And it's difficult because, you know, some of them don't want to be approached. They don't want to hear, they don't want to hear the story. And then, you know, you have to, you have to sort of uh, convey how, how, how great he was. The difficulty that, that you have in trying to get him elected is it was easy when you told Duke Slater's story for everyone to recognize this was an amazing football player. He had an amazing story. He was a deserving pro football hall of famer. The difficulty with the process is that uh, from the seniors committee standpoint is they're only able to nominate one or two, they have a strict cap of one or two nominees every year that they can put forward as a finalist for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So it, and it wasn't an issue where I needed them to understand that he was worthy of being a Pro Football Hall of Famer. The issue was is that when you look at the seniors pool, the people who are eligible from the seniors committee standpoint, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of guys who are all deserving. So what you had to try to, uh, to tell the seniors committee is not just he's deserving, but also this needs to be his year. 
He, he doesn't not just need to be elected to the Hall of Fame. He needs to be elected now because it's very easy to just sort of kick the can down the road, which is what they did for almost 50 years. Um, you know, no one argued that he wasn't deserving. They just said, well, let's let this guy in first and then we'll deal with him. Well, then years pass, decades pass. And you, and you have to uh, tell people and show people the urgency of, of letting him in. And, and, but 2020 was a real blessing because in 2020, they had an expanded class, a centennial class, uh, and where they were able to nominate a few more candidates. And not only that, but it was designed to honor 100 years uh, of NFL history. It was the 100th anniversary of the NFL. And, you know, I was really able to sort of help tell Duke Slater's story in the sense of if you look at 100 years of NFL history, Duke Slater played a pivotal, prominent role in the evolution of, of NFL history as the first black lineman in NFL history, as the first black athlete to play for a current NFL franchise when he played for the uh, Chicago and now Arizona Cardinals uh, in 1926. Um, these are the kinds of uh, uh, historical notes with Duke Slater where you said he was an important part of the evolution and history of this, of this league. Then that sort of opened the door in, in 2020 for people to decide, you know what, this is the right time. This is the right moment. Uh, for him to get in. And, and uh, it was it was a process that took uh, almost a decade. But uh, uh, and then, you know, he's finally going to get his moment in Canton and then COVID cancels it or, or postpones it for a full year. So uh, he's he's been elected. He still hasn't been. Uh, he still hasn't had the ceremony. Uh, but uh, we're hoping this fall that uh, uh, the pandemic will sort of clear up in August and uh, uh, he'll be he'll finally uh, be properly recognized. But I suppose after 100 years of waiting, another a uh, year doesn't seem like uh, so much, but uh, uh, we're excited that he's finally going to get that moment because uh, he's very deserving and uh, long, long overdue. Yeah. And, you know, I'm looking I was looking at the timeline here and Duke Slater played for Iowa in like the 1920s. And um, Hayden Fry is credited with integrating the Southwestern Conference when he's in when he's at SMU in 1966. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's fascinating to me that it, there was such like Iowa was so in a way ahead of the curve. And then you think of Frank Kenny Holbrook being 1895, a member of the Hawkeyes. So mm -hmm. I'm wondering, you know, what barriers existed for these two men and how were they able to overcome them so early in history? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, the uh, the barriers were, were, were very strong and, and lasted for a long, long time. I think, you know, again, I'm, I'm working on a book right now, which has a little bit to do with the University of Michigan as well. And uh, there's a story in, in this book that's upcoming about them electing their first black football captain in 1968. And, you know, you just think you think about 1968 and the University of Iowa, uh, their first uh, black football camp uh, captain was Homer Harris back in 1937. So, you know, you, Iowa was certainly an early adopter with, with, with uh, 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 providing opportunities for black athletes. And again, it's, it's, it's a, 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 a large combination of reasons for that. I think, um, you know, one is the fact that the University of Iowa has always been uh, one of the smallest institutions in the Big Ten. And I think that uh, uh, at a lot of schools, um, you know, uh, they were they were at a major advantage, and I was at a disadvantage in terms of being in a small state and a small school within that state. 
And then, of course, having to eventually divide the, the state with another uh, Power Five school in Iowa State. And so, you know, for the University of Iowa, um, these black athletes provided an opportunity for them to to be competitive. A lot of athletes like uh, Emlyn Tunnel, uh, who became the first black athlete to uh, uh, to be elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He wrote uh, in, in his autobiography, he said, you know, I knew the University of Iowa was a place where uh, Duke Slater played. And I knew, you know, if they gave him a chance, you know, they'd, they'd, they'd give me a chance. And so, you know, once you sort of have that reputation, then, uh, uh, then you know, you're, you're given uh, those opportunities to play at Iowa where those opportunities didn't exist uh, everywhere. And of course, you know, given the opportunity to play, uh, obviously is, is not and should not be confused with the fact that it was this uh, uh, a racial wonderland where they never encountered any problems. Um, you know, there were, uh, there were difficult trials and obstacles to go through. And uh, specifically, like you mentioned with Duke Slater, you know, the uh, black athletes were not allowed to live on campus. Um, they had to live off campus and in, in fraternity houses or, or other places. And, you know, that was just sort of a, a natural part of the discrimination they faced. Um, and, and, and that shouldn't be overlooked or, or, or minimized in any way. Um, but with that said, uh, they were given the opportunity to compete that was denied them in a lot of other places. And so that made it an attractive environment for that a lot of these black athletes gravitated towards. So, you know, if they were willing to go there and then overcome the obstacles of prejudice that were sort of, you know, being placed around them all over, um, uh, they'd be given a chance. And for a lot of these athletes, that's all they asked for, because if they got that, uh, they, they, they knew they could succeed. And, and so many of them did. Yeah. And I want to go even further back in time to Frank Holbrook and that story too. And, um, I just want to know how he ended up at Iowa and, you know, how did that play out? But then, you know, we've got a little bit of a gap between him and Duke Slater. So yeah, if you could maybe elaborate on, um, his story. Yeah. Frank Holbrook is the uh, first black athlete uh, at the University of Iowa. And uh, for all my research, uh, as far as I could find, uh, he's the first black intercollegiate athlete in the state of Iowa, uh, at any institution in the state of Iowa. Um, he uh, played football at the University of Iowa in 1895 and 1896. Uh, and then he also ran track uh, in uh, uh, 96 and 97. Um, uh, he was from Tipton, Iowa, uh, which is not far uh, from Iowa City and from the University of Iowa. Uh, his father uh, was actually a, a free slave uh, during the Civil War. And uh, uh, in the midst of the Civil War, he, uh, uh, his, uh, Frank Holbrook's father, uh, Holbrook Sr., was um, um, uh, in Virginia at the time. And he befriended a, uh, uh, a Union officer who was from Iowa City. And when the war ended, uh, uh, his father, who was also known as Kenny Holbrook, uh, uh, the uh, elder Kenny Holbrook just followed this uh, uh, captain uh, back to the Iowa City area. And uh, uh, as I said, settled in Tipton. So Frank Holbrook then uh, uh, was raised in Tipton, which is not far from the University of Iowa. And, um, you know, he uh, had a great uh, uh, athletic career as a, as a high school athlete. And uh, he wound up... Uh, uh, attending the University of Iowa, um, you know, it was one of those things where it was nearby and in state and some of the townspeople said, hey, you should go there. And uh, he showed up and, uh, you know, he was the the first black athlete uh, at the University of Iowa. And again, so as far as we can tell, first known black ath intercollegiate athlete in the entire state. 
um, uh, uh, played for two seasons and then uh, uh, left school. And then there was a, a pretty sizable gap before our next documented black athlete on the Hawkeye football team uh, uh, in Archie Alexander. And, um, you know, from Frank Holbrook, he, there were, there was some controversy during his time there in terms of uh, with opponents and what have you. And then, you know, about a decade passes and then Archie Alexander comes onto the scene and he faces some of the same resistance uh, from opponents in terms of uh, playing against a black athlete. So uh, those were the kinds of uh, uh, struggles uh, that these early pioneers faced. And it's probably a large part of the reason for, you know, those gaps, although, you know, a decade can, can, can go by fairly quickly when, when those things are on your mind. But, um, you know, I think, you know, that was sort of the atmosphere in which they were playing, where it was just sort of, uh, there were a, a few uh, black athletes uh, in uh, Big Ten and Big Ten area schools, but it was very, very, very rare. And uh, these guys had to overcome a lot of, of resistance uh, to, uh, to make it work. But uh, of course, in the case of Frank Holbrook, he went on to just have a legendary uh, impact on the University of Iowa. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, I was reading about Archie Alexander too, who is um, also has his own place in history. And um, I'm going to mention in the intro of the podcast. Um, but yeah, what was his, what mark did he leave on the University of Iowa? And what was it like for him to step into his position at the time period that he did, you know, following, you know, Frank Holbrook? Yeah, well, Archie Alexander was the first, uh, to, to our knowledge, the first black lineman to play at the University of Iowa. I, I give Archie Alexander a lot of credit because, you know, he played from 1909 through 1911. Uh, when Duke Slater came to the University of Iowa and first played in 1918, this was only uh, seven, eight years after Alexander had been a great uh, black lineman for the University of Iowa. And so, uh, Duke Slater's dominance on the line as a uh, as a black lineman wasn't as foreign as I think it might have been at some schools because really Archie Alexander had had paved the way and, and had led the way. Um, uh, you know, of course, Frank Holbrook uh, had some uh, uh, some uh, uh, had had a, had a difficult confrontation uh, in Missouri uh, for one of his games, and uh, for Archie Alexander, it was the same. Uh, there were a couple of games that Iowa was scheduled to play in Missouri and the state of Missouri, just south of the border, um, was very antagonistic toward uh, uh, black athletes. They did. They they had much more of an SEC sort of mentality. And so, um, you know, uh, there was actually a, a difficult situation where Iowa was scheduled to play Missouri in 1910. And Missouri basically uh, told Iowa, you better leave Archie Alexander at home. Uh, which was the same warning they had given uh, Iowa in 1896 when Kenny Holbrook was playing for Iowa. Well, in 1986, Iowa decided to play Holbrook anyway, and a, a mob scene broke out. Um, in 1910, Iowa decided to leave Kenny to leave Archie Alexander at home, and they left Archie Alexander uh, back in Iowa City. Um, he might have actually come with the team, but he didn't play, um, and Iowa lost. And I was head football coach at that time, uh, Jess Hawley. Uh, said, we're not playing Missouri again for as long as I'm here. I'm, I'm not going to go through that again. I'm not going to go through uh, essentially having to leave my best player or my best lineman uh, at home because they don't want him to play. And then you lose a game. So Iowa did not play 
uh, Missouri again. They stopped playing Missouri. Uh, the 1910 game was Iowa's last game against Missouri until 2010. Oh, I wow. would not play Missouri for a century, a full century, until the 2010 uh, Insight Bowl. Uh, that was uh, uh, so. Here are two border states, two border universities um, that go a century without playing each other. And it was the genesis of it was uh, was Archie Alexander, and it, it 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 made a huge impact on the University of Iowa at the time. People don't uh, appreciate and understand, but uh, what an impact uh, Archie Alexander had. But the interesting dynamic in 1910 was Iowa was actually in a rare position. I was playing in two conferences. Iowa at that time was actually playing in the Western Conference, which is now the Big Ten, and they were also playing in the Missouri Valley Conference, uh, which was a precursor to the Big Six. Uh, Big Seven, eventually Big Eight, and now the Big 12, which Iowa State was in as well. Well, because of uh, the uh, the controversy with Archie Alexander and Iowa essentially cutting athletic ties with the University of Missouri, Iowa wound up dropping out of the Missouri Valley Conference and sticking with the Western Conference. And that really drove Iowa down the path, which they were already on, but it kind of solidified that they were going to go down the path and, and being in the Big Ten Conference. Uh, as opposed to staying in the Missouri Valley with a school like Iowa State, where they would eventually wind up in, in what's now the Big 12 Conference. So it kind of had, uh, it sent a ripple effect that wound up sort of solidifying Iowa's place in the Big 10 and shunning uh, a potential place uh, in the Big 12 where, where Iowa State now is. So uh, it, it definitely has uh, historical notes that have, have rung throughout uh, Iowa's athletic history. But uh, Archie Alexander was a phenomenal player, uh, nicknamed uh, Alexander the Great. Uh, he was uh, a great player. And again, he did great things after football. Uh, he was named the uh, territorial governor of uh, uh, the U.S. Virgin Islands by, uh, by uh, President Dwight Eisenhower in the 1950s. So he was an amazing guy, an amazing engineer, and, uh, and a great story as well. So uh, uh, well worth uh, another great story, uh, well worth knowing. Yeah. Oh, it's so interesting that it took 100 years for Iowa to play its ne- basically a next-door neighbor in Missouri. Um, who knew, I mean, I, I think that it's pretty substantial and even eventually leading to Iowa's decision to join what became the big 10. I think that's, um, you know, these are all things that are stories that like nobody really, um, knows, or maybe it's just stuff that we haven't thought about in a very, very long time. Um, I'm wondering the coaches for, um, Frank and for Archie and for um, Duke. I'm wondering, you know, did they, when they were going, I don't know what recruiting looked like back then. It probably was not near as extensive as it is now, but I'm wondering what their mindset was, you know, bringing these athletes onto their team. Did they sense that there would be this kind of like controversy? Did they just see a really good athlete? Like, do you know, or do you have any like historical context as to, you know, what their thoughts were in bringing black athletes on campus? Yeah, I think I was blessed by having a couple of coaches that quite frankly, just wanted to win. And that was really kind of the the impetus for, for sort of uh, bringing these guys in or welcoming them in. Uh, When you look at uh, Frank Holbrook, who is the first, uh, when he joined the University of Iowa football team in 1895 as the first uh, black football player in, in Hawkeye football history, Iowa very nearly didn't have a team that year. Uh, the Hawkeye football program almost went bankrupt 
uh, that season. And it was, uh, Iowa was uh, eventually saved by a last minute round of fundraising that Iowa did field a team in 1895, but they weren't a particularly good team. And as I said, they were very disorganized. And in fact, in 1895, Iowa was so poor uh, or, you know, staving off bankruptcy that Iowa didn't have a head coach that uh, that year. And um, that was the last year that Hawkeye football did not have a dedicated uh, head coach. So in, in that way, I think uh, Frank Holbrook kind of snuck under the radar, if you will. He also played end, which at that time, which was before passing, uh, an end was sort of mostly block, a blocker and not really in the spotlight, sort of more like a lineman role. Um, so he kind of was able to slip under the radar. Uh, when Coach Bull came in the following year, uh, Coach A.E. Bull uh, took over in 1896, and he immediately saw Holbrook's talent. He said, why is this guy's end? He moved him to halfback, and he said, this guy's going to carry the ball for us. And immediately, Frank Holbrook became an, an instant star, uh, led the Hawkeyes in, in scoring that year, and, uh, of course, led Iowa to a phenomenal season uh, where they actually uh, won the first conference title. Uh, in school history that year in, in 1896. So um, he was, he was, you know, very open to it. And I think when you look at some of these other coaches, they were, they were much the same where uh, again, Iowa had a, a distinct disadvantage uh, when you look at their conference peers and whatever else in that they were in a, a very small state. Um, you know, it, it was a very difficult situation at the university of Iowa. So here's this phenomenal athlete who's going to help us win. Uh, Iowa was just fortunate to have coaches that frankly just wanted to, um, to push the envelope and, uh, uh, and, and utilize their best players. And uh, it wound up uh, leading to, to Iowa having more success than, than, than clearly they otherwise would have. So uh, uh, the coaches definitely uh, played a role in, in, in uh, allowing these guys to have the, the platform where they could shine. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, you know, you're a historian, you've, we're, t- we're talking about history and um you know, I, I'm curious as to like, how do we use this as a lens toward, um, you know, looking at the future of Iowa athletics and, you know, you being a white man, I being a white woman, we're sitting here, we're having this conversation about black history and informing ourselves and trying to inform the people who listen to the podcast, but also, you know, how do we use this information moving forward and how can we benefit from knowing this history? Well, I think particularly when you look at some of the things that have come up over the past year and, you know, so, so much of the uh, racial bias and racial equality issues that uh, particularly have come up with Hawkeye football, you know, I think the importance of this history really is to, is to illustrate a very important fact, which is providing opportunities for black athletes and providing uh, the best possible environment for them is part of our history. It's part of our culture. It's baked into literally the foundation of Hawkeye athletics and Hawkeye football. Uh, these are our values. And, you know, in, in terms of, uh, you know, providing athletes for, you know, providing opportunities for, for black athletes today, you know, the, the needs and the, you know, the, the things that they, that they wanted and the opportunities that, that, that they needed created for them a uh, hundred years ago is not in the same world in terms of what black athletes are asking for today. I mean, the game has evolved, the sport has evolved. And, uh, you know, uh, this, this great history that we talk about and that we need to recognize and honor 
does not in any way minimize or trivialize uh, what the black athletes are, are, are looking for today and, and, and need going forward. But the reason that I think it's important is because, you know, the University of Iowa has had a great history in terms of providing opportunity for black athletes. That history hasn't been perfect. It hasn't been 100%. It's been up and down. There have been uh, trials and struggles. You know, the black boycott in 1969 uh, comes to mind. And, you know, it's, it's, it's been a rocky history. It's always going to be a rocky history. But what I think is most important is that, you know, for the most part, Iowa has had uh, a number of great black pioneers uh, help the Hawkeye Athletic Department over the decades. When you look back to that, what you have to say is, you know, this is what we've been in our history. And that doesn't mean that's what you're always going to be. That's, you know, it's, it's, it's like winning football games. You have to defend that position. You have to defend it every year, every minute, every second. You have to keep fighting to stay there. But what I think is important to understand is this is what the University of Iowa and Hawkeye Athletics was built on. And so it is really part of Iowa's values to get back there and to continue to be that. It, I know that Hawkeye football, again, over the past year in particular, has gone through its struggles with racial equity and you know, racial bias and, and all those things. But, you know, prov being a leader in terms of providing opportunities for black athletes, that is what the University of Iowa fundamentally is about. That's the foundation of, that Iowa is built upon. And you know, at times you've gotten away from that, but that's our destiny. That's what we're supposed to be. That's what we're meant to be. And, you know, I, I firmly believe that that's what the University of Iowa can and should represent. And we can get back to that. That's our place within the sporting world. We can get back to that. Now, you can, you're not going to get there overnight. It's going to take a lot of work and it's going to take a lot of work from, from people uh, a lot smarter than me. And more importantly, who've, who've lived that black experience, right? They're the the, the people that need to, uh, you know, to, to dictate where this is going because, you know, uh, they, they know where this, this, these conversations need to go. And it's their voices that need to be heard. You know, during, you know, uh, the past year, I, I really haven't talked much about it or touched much on it because, frankly, it's, my voice isn't the one that's needed. We need to hear the, those Black voices and to let them, you know, uh, dictate, you know, where, where we go. But, I, I believe in the University of Iowa. I believe in what it represents. And what it does represent is providing a great opportunity for black athletes. We need to, to, to get that back to that. We need to get to that because that is who we are. That defines who we are. And that's absolutely who we can be again. That journey is not going to be easy. It's not going to be fast. It's, it's going to be painful. But I believe that's what we're about. And as long as you continue believing that that's what you're about, I believe with a lot of time and a lot of hard work, you know, we can continue, we can get back to providing that kind of outstanding atmosphere for our black athletes that they need and deserve. I want to thank Neil for coming on my first episode of the On Iowa podcast. You can follow his work on neilrosendahl.com. He is also on Twitter. Please stay tuned for the next two episodes. I had some interesting and enlightening conversations with all of my guests, and I'm really excited to share their stories with you. You can follow my work on thegazette.com and on Twitter at lvan underscore sports. 
and let me know what you think of the podcast nicely and maybe even ask me what other topics you might be interested in knowing more about. All right, now stay tuned to the On Iowa podcast. We've got a lot of cool stuff coming and y'all have a good one.